Welcome to the Truth Lover webinar and podcast presented by Love and Truth Party. I am your host, Will Pye. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this clarity as new earth ninjas. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act, to lessen suffering and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive the love and care in these, and within the happiness hacks and other resources found on loveandtruthparty.org. Our online courses, cancer, uh, uh, depression diagnosis, what you need to know, and cancer diagnosis, what you need to know, are in production, whilst our freely offered monthly meditation is at 7 a.m. Melbourne time, first Monday of the month. All details are on the website where you can connect with regular updates. In giving, we receive, we believe this truly, and invite you to pay it forward if you received a love letter or enjoyed this podcast in a social experiment, really, of what it is to be the change. You can do this by, by sharing the podcast, getting your love letters from the website, following us on all the usual social media channels. And if you feel called to support us financially, you can do so at loveandtruthparty.org forward slash support. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by Andy Chaleth. Andy's life's work is helping people connect with themselves and others through vulnerability and self-awareness. His mentoring style is equal parts unsettling and comforting, irreverent and compassionate. Andy's nonprofit, The Last Letter, invites individuals to share their feelings in letters to loved ones. It's also the title of his extraordinary book. In, in September, Andy will be driving for three months through the US, sitting with groups, asking participants to write letters to loved ones. There are currently over 60 such sessions planned in just about everywhere that one could imagine. All sessions are free. So if you're in the US, do check out The Last Letter. Dot com. Uh, at the start of the tour, Andy will be releasing the book I mentioned, The Last Letter, which is a 30-year journey to make peace with the past. For more information, you can go to www.thelastletter.com. Uh, there's an article on Elephant Journal as well. I heartily recommend the book. I was lucky to be one of the uh, early readers of that book. It's an extraordinary journey, a real hero's journey, an archetypal tale I, I felt in the reading and uh, much wisdom in there. So Andy, great to have you on the show. Welcome. It's great to be here. Are you excited? You're about to head off on this odyssey of 60, 60 events. <laughs> the, the, the week before it feels already like it's the, the journey has begun. So it's been like, there's been like what the hell am I doing moments which are just like you know because I've been so busy planning I haven't really considered what I was doing it was really this whole thing has been a very spontaneous act so you know it was six months ago or less than six months ago I didn't even know this was going to be happening so now that it is happening it's a bit of a like how did I get here you know, I, I can relate yeah. to that. And you spoke a moment ago to speaking the word 60 events for the first time. And I mean, that's, yeah. that's huge. That's, uh, that's more than rock stars have. Uh, on <laughs> that's that's, that's uh, a lot of people you'll be connecting. 
Yeah, it was what it was actually. I had a really beautiful experience this past week. I was, um, I was in in bed. It was it was one of those. It was really one of the harder nights when I was just sitting, kind of absorbing. I'd be away from my wife for six for those three months. You know, I'd she'll visit maybe in between, but we won't necessarily see each other a lot of that time. And I thought, well, you know, what am I doing? And, and and it just was like an overwhelming sense that I had to. You know, I had to, again, let just give over to that feeling. And then I got a, I'll, I'll probably crack that. <laughs> I got a, a last letter from somebody that I went to from first to eighth grade with. And they, and they sent me a last letter and I read it. And I just cried. Uh, and, and, and that was, you know, kind of remind us like, oh, that's why you're doing this. Right. It was mm. like, um, so yeah, it was, there's reminders of why I'm doing it, but it's, it's really I, I get them from those letters, right? That's the that's the those are the gifts. So the book and the website will give people a lot more of the information, and I encourage people to read the book. I sincerely enjoyed it myself. Um, where did the book come from? Is that something that you've been working on for a long time? Was it, is that spontaneous as well? Well, I mean, the book, you know, as you know, you know, our, our, our common friend, Case, when Case de Brun, our, you know, my mentor and someone that you also were very familiar with, when Case died four years ago, uh, it was, he was so full of so much content in his work that he didn't necessarily put in any, um, in any published form, that as soon as he died, I just started to write. And I wrote. I think about 80 pages of material. They were trying to articulate the specific areas of consciousness that he was latching onto. And I wanted to sort of create a, a I don't know what you call it, like a, 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 a it, it wouldn't be a memoir from him, but it would be more of a, uh, like this is my understanding of the world. And when I created that, uh, I, I gave it to people to read and in, in order to start, in order to start to the to start to um, to begin writing, because I you know I'm not an author you know by trade or anything, I started to write my own life story. It was almost like let me get my hand warmed up, and let me just sort of start to write, and let me and so I gave it to people to, to read, thinking okay, just get through the part about me, and then you'll enjoy the part about case. And psychologically, I was just waiting for people, and then it was like. I really like that, that part about you. Case, that was okay, but the part about you is really interesting. And it kind of threw me back on myself. <laughs> so that so, was the start of that, yeah. So if I'm hearing correctly, the, there was a be beginning intention around, uh, and I'm gonna offer this phrase or this um, languaging, it was to, to, to detail Case's teachings or Case's perspectives. Yeah. In, in Zen terminology, so let's, let's, uh, let's say that Case was a Zen master. I'm sure yeah. he would enjoy this wherever he might be listening from. Yes. The Roku is the um, often written after the, 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 the teacher's passing uh, yeah. or in their lifetime. This is their, their teaching. So it sounds like you were kind of doing something similar, but it became more of a, an Andy story, which I think Case probably would also have, have, have enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it's emotional to talk about him because I love him so much. But yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, it was like if you if you love someone that much and they mean that much to you, you sort of 
you just sort of you enjoyed being close to them through the writing and and then it you know it I don't necessarily I follow intention but I also allow it to guide me and and, and in essence in the act of doing then it became apparent to me that it, it was just made more sense to share actually what made more sense to share was my life experience with case which was actually what I learned from him as opposed to what he taught. So mm -hmm. it was, it, it, it was very much still taught. It, it was still shared from the perspective of what was learned, but much more of my journey with him as opposed to what he himself, you know, did per se. Yeah. And you, 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 you said to me once that it was kind of like a, a last letter to case. So you have this concept of the last letter that we write to someone in, in your case, uh, excuse the pun, a lot of this came from a communication to your mother, which turned out to be yeah. the last letter that you wrote to her without realizing it at the time, which kind of points to a deep poignancy, I feel, of, of like the, the, the power of what you're, what you're sharing with the world. Yeah, well, I mean, that story is the, the predominant one that defined really my life. So basically, yeah, you know, I, the story is that uh, I, um, I, I was taking the sociology of death class when I was a freshman in college. And in that, in that uh, sort of the urgency of that moment, like I, w I realized, wow, I, I'm really going to lose everything I love, right? You're a freshman just out of the house for the first time. And you, it's pretty scary, right? You, you, you know, you, you rely on a lot of things at that time in your life still. So uh, I wrote my mom this letter and she received that letter and then she left me a voicemail and then it would have been four or five hours later she was hit and killed by a drunk driver so the the that that experience uh, was uh it was just incredibly overwhelming for me and that really from that moment forward defined my life but what i discovered was that the pain of that moment had really been suppressed for the next 20 years so when when case had died you know it, it was actually coming up on 25 years later and when i worked with him what i was like starting to uncover was all of the pain of that time in my life so in essence writing from the point of my mother's death till sort of just after case's death sort of kind of gave me this you know it was a journey of how i rediscovered loss in my life and then of course and then in that loss i had to lose case which was you know then so it was really a last letter to both of them but he certainly was uh, created the the impetus at this moment in my life to write yeah i'm i'm intrigued in uh to hear whether in cases passing i know that grief is uh i don't know much about it personally but i do know that it's a very personal yeah. experience right yeah, talk about the five stages and so on, but really it, it varies from individual to individual. And you mentioned a lot of the pain uh, was overwhelming and not possible mm -hmm. to experience in the immediacy with your mother. I'm wondering if there was a, a sort of coming into contact with some of the intensity and depth of that loss of your mother when, when case passed, if there was a sort of uh, activating some of the unmet pain as well. You know, I certainly, I've, I've certainly noticed through the years, because I've also lost my father as well, is that actually the, the depth and the, the, um, 
experience of that pain is so unique and different for each the loss of each person the, you know before i lost my dad i often thought oh i'm preparing for his loss every time i see him and then when he actually died i realized that the, that that was far more emotional than i would have expected and in the loss of case um i think it was weird because i'd lived really with an intense urgency that he was going to be gone but in, when he was gone, it sort of just, it, it was, it was surreal and it didn't feel like it was processed as urgently as I would have expected, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, which probably was a very good, you know, when we talk about the writing of the book, you know, that is what, when you have an emotion, you sort of channel it. If, if you can use that emotion to, to, um, to compel you, then I would even say that, that having that emotion inside of me was what compelled the writing to begin. Right, like processing the loss. And you talk a lot, and as I understand that a lot of your work is around how to be with pain and, and sort of uh, transmuting or alchemizing or, or using, discovering the, the gold even, metabolizing the pain. It sounds like the writing of the book had a degree of a, a cathartic um, aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the weird thing about writing which was, I wrote the book with uh, last year with Ronnie, my wife next to me, we were on our honeymoon. We took our three months through Europe. And, and I wrote it, uh, you know, every morning, I'd wake up at four in the morning, write for three hours on my iPhone next to Ronnie, right? It was a kind of 200, 300 pages of just texting, you know, in bed, just kind of funny experience in itself. And, um, and as I, as I was writing, it was almost like being in a meditation. I would say it was because it was as if I was allowing myself to go fully into an experience that I already had and then write from that experience, which was a, which was a strange experience for me. It wasn't as if I was logically like, let me articulate this in a really good way. It was like, let me write from the feeling. And then I began to, to write. And it was, uh, yeah, that was the process. And that's a, I've never heard such a process. I guess writing on a, a phone or an iPad or whatever these days is, is quite common, but to be doing so uh, in, in that ambrosial hour as you're awakening and beside your wife as well, like of course in the past we wouldn't have been able to you know, smash the typewriter whilst we were yeah. lying in bed, but now you can sort of be in that place of great safety and comfort and, and yet um, yes. I, I, I imagine that would positively inform and affect the quality and the intimacy of the writing. Yeah, that's that. It, it very much felt very connected, and and there was a beauty to it because when when Ronnie and I would wake up, up and then at breakfast, uh, normally I would read the text to her as we were sitting and eating, and then no, we would see, you know, if she would emotionally be be moved by it, and I said, oh, I know this is going in the right direction, and if it was, you know, not touching her on any level, then it was okay apparently this isn't the right direction, you know, it was a very, you know, she's very emotional. So I, it's a very easy to see, oh, apparently this is too heady, right? Or this is missing an intimacy which people can relate to, right? That's beautiful. I can see how that would be uh, an effective and, and necessary sounding board. From my own experience, we can often write bits that might seem very clever or, or insightful, but yeah. perhaps actually lack that authenticity or, or value that the, the reader might enjoy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that, and it was nice. He pushed me in certain directions, which was also nice. Mm-hmm. Andy, go this way. I want to hear about this or go that way. I want to hear about that. Oh, okay. You know, it was really sweet to allow the, the feet that, you know, not being driven by a narrative, but letting it evolve was really quite, quite beautiful as well. I'm, I'm touched hearing that because it speaks to uh, a deepening relationship, a deepening intimacy and, and, and knowing happening between you and Ronnie. And it feels like that's very deeply aligned with the whole essence of the love letter or sorry, the last letter to um, which may well be a love letter to deepen connection, to say what often is left unsaid. And I know that with one of the reasons I was excited about having this conversation with you, one of the reasons it felt very aligned with love and truth party is that's, that's very much a thread of what we're inviting is like what's important now and to express that appreciation and express that love that we feel for friends, lovers, family, whatever it is in the knowledge um, that we don't know when we're going to pass. We don't know when we or they are going to the past. And it feels like the two of those combined, the, the expression of love, verbalizing, putting into words our appreciation of people and the, the, the pathos and poignancy of, of the impermanence of our existence is a really, really powerful combination, a really deep combination that you've touched on. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because in, in my life, it, you know, it, it goes all the way back, of course, to the college, as I mentioned, is that living with that urgency has been a, a deep part of my own life. And in my coaching work, it's also a deep part of my coaching. And, and I've seen that people have a really hard time allowing the pain in because it's so overwhelming. And then they can't use that pain to create the, the, this almost beautiful urgency and then intimacy. And, and, and so it's this weird paradox, right? You, you know, to feel the love, you need to allow the pain. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's especially in societies, and we know those societies very, very well that are avoiding pain, that are, oh, not good, let's go to positivism. In, in this positivist way of living, you really lose that opportunity to live with the urgency of the, the sad and the sadness and pain. So, yeah. And, and yet it seems like uh, sort of paradoxically, there is a profound positivity in your message in that yeah. when we face the pain, when we're willing to go into the negative, the hopelessness, the sadness, the grief, the shame, yeah. in that meeting of that, in the experiencing of that fully, uh, we don't die. You know, it's not as overwhelming as perhaps it's, or perhaps there is a death of sorts, but it's not necessarily one that we would uh, wish to avoid. We come out the other side with something that we didn't have before we'd faced that, uh, that pain or that, or that grief. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, it seems to be a really significant message in a time of, yeah, in our culture, mental health, uh, male suicide, um, many of these things are, uh, we're aware at really um, uh, crisis levels. And mm-hmm. it feels like cultivating and facilitating that ability to actually feel the intensity of our fear, our, our shame, our grief, and so on is 
really supportive of well-being ultimately supportive of a greater emotional resilience and so on yeah i mean i'd love it if society stopped diagnosing and pushing people away from the pain and and just uh, you know it's kind of i've always found it just beautiful when one individual is experienced pain and then then either an, another individual or group have so much so much trouble with that pain that they either like mitigate it or they you know they'll try to soften it, it yeah or fix it like in, in the and i'm in my mind always sitting just saying shut up and feel your own pain like don't 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 like run away from your pain and then like take away their pain from them like allow them to have that you know and allow yourself to have it at the same time right it's that quiet discomfort that everyone sort of is going through in themselves that, that you know they hijack everyone else's pain because they can't of course feel their own and yeah, I'm, I'm very in contact with that, you know, very much in myself. So I'm in, I see it obviously then going on around me. Right yeah. it, it's a, a frequent observation of my own in, uh, in group work and so on that movement to, to fix or adjust. And often it's not coming from a skillful means of myself mm -hmm. or the other person, but it's a desire to stop that discomfort or to move the discomfort yeah. away. And it feels like when, when we started to talk, we were talking about ways to frame our dialogue and the, these words, intensity, urgency, and authenticity came up. And we're sort of playing with the temporality of that, like which, which comes first? Is it the authenticity yes. leads to intensity and urgency? Or is it living with an urgency and intensity that brings up authenticity? Or, or um, sensing that there's something in the facing our intense pain that's deeply authentic and would be a lot of people would be like, well, that's, that's intense. That's, um, you know, that's, that's yeah. uh, not what we usually sign up for in our. Exactly. Day. Yeah. I think often they'll talk developmentally that there's an experience and then there's a reaction to the experience. And then there's the actual doing of that reaction. And in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of seeing it as, so there's the reaction to a thought that creates that pain. And once that thought arises and the pain comes, the question then is, how does the individual process that pain? And I would love it if that process went to like a virtuous cycle, right? Like one that says, oh, I'm missing them. Or, oh, I feel a loss in the thought that they might not be there tomorrow. And then the action around that, which then gives that pain meaning. Can you because give a, an example, perhaps in your own experience, of to, to flesh that out a little bit? Well, it, it, the examples would be th this letter I told you that I received from uh, this friend that I went to, you know, first to eighth grade with. It was a, it was a, a moment when um, when his he, his brother was twenty seven years old. We would have been in our early twenties, and his brother committed suicide, and. Um, and I wasn't able to go to the funeral because I was at university and I didn't have transport, but I came back later and he was playing basketball on, on the court at some you know, school, it was a pickup game. And, and I found out where he was and I went there and like there, there was, you know, he's playing basketball, he's in the middle of something else. There's 20 excuses not to, to engage him at that moment, right? 
and that pain would stop you normally from doing that because you would just say, oh, he's doing something else. But I said, screw that. I went, jumped the fence. And he wrote me that like, like in the middle of, you know, him playing a game with like 10 people he doesn't really know because it's a pickup game. I like ran onto the court and just hugged him. Yeah. And how was that for him? I mean, he's written you a letter years on that gives us a sense of the impact. Yeah. Well, I hugged him. I didn't say a word. And then I left. And, and then he said that it was the first time that he felt like he didn't need to take care of somebody else. And so just following the pain, going there, giving love with nothing, no expectation, no wanting to feel understood or, and then, and then just leaving for him, you know, that would have been however, almost 30 years on, he said that that lesson taught him how much just being there in love was enough. <laughs> there's, there's something so rich in that. One of the passages in your book that I recall was yeah. the being at your mother's funeral and the platitudes and useless comments that were offered. Yeah. And yeah. I think in that situation, no one knows or people often don't know how to be Yes. with the unspeakable shittiness or, or the immensity yeah. of your pain. They can't feel it. They can't change it. They can't no. fix it. They can't end it. And the power of actually just being present, yeah, like perfectly embodied with, with, with a hug, of, of just being with someone in their discomfort or in their pain, the power of that presence is, um, yeah, I encounter like this again and again. I'd like to change that in that you sit of being with them and their pain to in me being with my pain with them. Mm -hmm. Cause it's interesting that often I've sensed that people sense they're not connected to their own pain. When they give comfort to somebody, they're not really comforting them in some way because the person feels that it's not only it's so much bigger than than they're even capable of that they almost need a guiding light it's your pain that helps me find my pain and a lot of times we shut down the pain and we don't then help that other person connect to theirs right, right. It, it, it's that idea of i was reading a little piece about this earlier of the um the the broken healer or the wounded healer that we go through our own fire or breakdown or suffering and through a process of encountering that and, and finding some alchemy or some transmutation or some capacity just to, just to bear it, to bear it, to, to sit with it. We're then able to encounter another who's holding something similar and, 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 and sit with, with that. And, and kind of that, that division of your pain, my pain becomes... Um, this pain. It's the pain that we're feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really it, right? The ability to have compassion and not necessarily even equate it to anything specific. Just, just, just love, right? Mm. Period. Not love of or anything like it directed towards anything. Just the state. You know, that's beautiful. That's that's for me. That's part again, very much part of my trip 
around the U.S. is just to be in love with without any focus or need. Yeah, I'm excited for sixty evenings, yeah. afternoons of such yeah. uh, depth of intention. I'm uh, looking forward to to hearing during and 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 beyond, like what unfolds in that time. I, I sense the uh, the depth of potential around that, uh, and there's something revolutionary about this. It, it comes up again and again in conversations that I have, and yet it still is revolutionary, as you say in our culture we're inclined to uh, pathologize and then medicate pain um, yeah specifically with grief there's this crazy crazy thing apparently it used to be six months was what was allowed for grief, yeah. and then after six months the doctor said well that's now depression you need to be medicated apparently they've actually pulled that back to three months someone was saying or eight weeks yeah. it's like uh, yeah wow that's it's like just, it's like like pregnancy and how long the woman is allowed to take off from work after the actual date, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, how do you arbitrarily decide that this is enough time with the baby? Well, <laughs> well, well my, my favorite after brain surgery, I had this like handout leaflet. Um, so a seven hour brain surgery and it said, you, know, you can return to work after two weeks. And I thought, wow, the, the person that wrote this has, has never had brain surgery. That's, that's for sure. Oh, wow. um, so the individuated, aspect of each experience as you pointed to with each loss that you yeah. experienced there was a, a quality to it that was unique that was of that particular loss that some might um, pass through in the intensity in a period of months some might uh, take years and years decades even yeah. to fully metabolize through the through the system yeah yeah it's 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 a very personal experience and I, I believe that there's, uh, there's just so much beauty in that experience that you want it to evolve at the pace at which it's meant to evolve. It's, it is a journey. It isn't a, it isn't a, a, a state that, is, that, that passes and that, you know, if I look at my own mom's death, if, if, when I would have been considered functional in life, I would have been dysfunctional in my being. So if, if, by, by if, if I have to pretend to be okay in order for society to accept that I'm over it, then that isn't over it. That's just, oh, apparently society has figured out a way that someone can be productive in the world without, you know, without disrupting it because of what appears to be an arbitrary issue, <laughs> right? Right, and, and that touches on a, on a harshness of our modern culture that, we've given so much importance to output efficacy, productivity, uh, clocking in the hours, playing our part in the industrial output, that the realities of, of, of grief, our human experiences, or indeed of, of birth, are, uh, we, attempt, we attempt to manipulate them to fit into that. Um, into the that, industrial revolution uh, recipe, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and we that's, have that's painful, course. right? Oh, I mean, what's painful is that <clears throat> society is incapable of seeing that we're a byproduct of a system that exists outside of us. That's, that's the sad part, right? Because what, 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 when you're in a group of people and then everyone says, oh, that's normal. <laughs> and there's no reflection on how normal came to be normal, right? Or any reflection on how they had 
been socialized by systems, by education, by family, and all generation after of what normalcy was, and then it becomes so normal that actually an honest experience that's contrary to whatever that normal is is now you know obviously either diagnosed or becomes problematic, right? I, yeah. I watched a, a YouTube video earlier on today, which which speaks to this really powerfully, and it was around. It's a guy called Eric Klopper. He was speaking at Harvard University, uh-huh. and he was speaking about male genital mutilation, um, which mm-hmm. we call circumcision and make normal. Uh, for some reason, culturally, female genitalia um, being mutilated is, is wrong and unacceptable. Yeah. But to uh, mutilate a, a boy's genitalia at a young age without anesthetic, with the express purpose of diminishing sexual pleasure. I, I, you've got to watch this video. It's, it's just such a beautiful example of what you're pointing to, how we do something and we do something and we do something and we say that it's normal. But then we actually look at it from uh, a fresh perspective. It's like, oh my God, why are we doing that? There's 120 million Americans who have been circumcised or had their genitalia mutilated with a medical explanation that's given that doesn't actually uh, hold true the Dutch pediatricians and the German pediatricians and look at the American pediatric society and go, what on earth are they talking about? There's no scientific basis for it whatsoever. So we're talking about being with pain and being able to be with intensity and Mm. the amount of unnecessary uh, pain that we, that we create for ourselves unquestionably. And so it's a bit of a digression, but it just, that's alive in my field at the moment, having watched it earlier on today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and what just to follow up on your your thoughts here, what's beautiful about it, like let's say, for instance, that at some point we as a society even agree that there it's arbitrary, right? That that yeah, there it, it, we see that it had a thought at some point, but it's no longer relevant today. Now, if if you're the parent of that child. And you went through even an experience where just to belong, that's basically where everyone else had. And, and in essence, there's also, you're taking showers in high school and God forbid that you feel out of place. So it, it, at some point, it just perpetuates itself because comfort, it isn't even a logical, it's like, oh, we just do it because it was always done that way. I mean, that, that is the, the natural development, right? Absolutely. That's why why governments governments will have advertising campaigns for like years on end only to help change a paradigm like that in the world. (laughs) Right. Right. And and that movement to belong and and be acceptable and be easy for people around us, I see how that would apply to accessing our grief. I mean, if you express your grief in its raw or your rage, particularly in spiritual circles, to express this in an unadulterated form, most people can't handle that, aren't prepared to handle that. Culturally, we, 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 we depress that. We, we seek to, to push that down rather than allow it to, to really be fully felt. Yeah, I mean, that's another core issue is if you think about the societal ideas of what is or isn't acceptable that really uh that is another just dampening of our human experience because of course if you as you said 
especially in spiritual realms, um, to to allow an emotion to be expressed that may be uh, may be considered interpreted as violence, right? Even if it isn't necessarily towards any specific person, that's considered a lesser emotion, right? Or you haven't gotten over that yet, or you haven't healed from that, and then all of a sudden it it just stops people from actually allowing themselves to go through a healing process. This uh, this past three days, I did. Uh, training in my um, in 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 my center here where I am now for um, uh, core energetics and core energetics is I don't know if you've had an experience with it but it is an incredible thing to experience you have a foam a, a big foam box in the middle of a room and a tennis racket and you basically short circuit your brain as you're banging the tennis racket screaming out everything you couldn't scream out as the repressed child that maybe had a really bad experience that didn't, wasn't able to, to work through that pain. So it, it's an amazing experience to see like when you're banging away with this tennis racket on this, uh, on this big foam mat, the emotions where your body is now not holding the, because of course at some point you logically figure it out emotionally, but your body still has the posture of that sort of 10 year old that wasn't able to be either loved or was was hurt in some in some way. So yeah, I had screaming and shouting in the house for three or four days, only concerned that the police were gonna show up after after big outages of emotional, you know, passing. And and knowing that this is exactly the way healing happens. And at the same token, oh my God, if if somebody from outside were to come in and view this, they they judge it as, oh. These people are, or, or, or you haven't figured that out yet, right? But then, of course, if they took that same tennis racket, they would be doing the same thing themselves, right? It's not as if that is an experience we all share. Yeah, and, and when we come into contact with the power of that energetic release, and I've experienced something similar with uh, looking to access those places of rage or, or anger and essence to, to physically express it, when we come into contact with the intensity of that power or the intensity of that energy, the yeah. idea of it being a good idea, I mean, great for society, or, or, but a good idea for our system, for our well-being to suppress that or, or, or to yeah. repress that or to lock it in the system, clearly reveals itself, quickly reveals itself to be dangerous because that's a, it's, like, it's like sitting on a hand grenade, you know? It's, uh, yeah, it's far more dangerous, obviously. A repressed emotion, when it finally has the ability to come out, is always flipped much further than it would ever be if it would just came out as a sort of bits and pieces through, you know, uh, just allowing it at, in the moment when it comes. Right. right. Yeah. And we're living in an epidemic of school shootings in, in the U.S., very often young males who have had a mental health history, very often with, with depression. Um, so there's a potential link to a lack of healthy emotional expression, a lack of healthy emotional metabolizing. I encountered this terminology recently with a lady called Shanti Zimmerman. This idea of metabolizing emotion, of metabolizing yeah. pain, seems to sit with what you're, you're pointing yeah, out. Yeah, it, it's very much a metabolism. I mean, if you think about it, you could see it metabolism. You could see it as a snake that's just swallowed up something that it can't quite process at that moment. It really is a process by which it's, it's the emotion and the intensity of it dissolves in you 
and then it either be if you're in that case a snake and it sort of goes down but it doesn't metabolize so it, it'll, it goes further down but it's not as so it's further away from wh where you can touch it but it, it's still there right mm -hmm. and yeah it's uh if there's anything i'm doing in my own work it's sort of seeing people in their 10 year olds or their 13 year old or 14 year old states showing love for that part of them so that they can finally allow themselves to love that part as well so it's like how do you and and to and not you know it's so hard for people because we see a person in their 40s or their 50s and then there's like all these crazy assumptions like oh they actually the physical representation of it is who they are right we project so quickly we have no like no thought that emotionally they could very well be in a 15 or 13 or a 10 year old state but we have we accommodate that to like never we just don't accommodate that which freaks me out i'm like you see a 40 year old i see a 13 or 14 year old and then i'm always laughing why are you speaking to them like a 40 year old <laughs> like how could you know my brain doesn't allow that 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 like the projection to be just acted upon it actually responds to the 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 response of the person when they're when they maybe share something that said that shows that they're not in the 40 year old state of mind right why would you interact with somebody like a 40 year old if they're responding as if they're 13 right so there's a body a physical body that's you know 40 50 60 but there's a an emotional body that is sort of stunted or or, or, or stopped developing in some way at, at some at some age and I, I think if i'm hearing you correctly often you can you can see that in facial uh expressions and parts of how people are held in their physicality yeah. and so on and the the perspective that you're offering i would assume in that insight in that recognition uh, there's a compassion that naturally arises, a gentleness oh. that naturally arises when we uh, interact with people. Of course, because I see that 13-year-old in me <laughs> or that 15-year-old. So it's as if, if I'm not connected to myself, then it's all interpretative and it's not very close to the person I'm with. So basically, if I see it and I experience that in myself, then I can connect with what it feels like to be there if I'm disconnected or I can't, I, I can't quite touch that experience because it isn't part of me, then I'm just very uh, inquisitive, right? I'm just wondering what, I'm, what is it that I didn't experience or what is it that they're experiencing that I haven't necessarily embodied or maybe even been in contact with myself yet. And that's just, that keeps the exploration open. Yeah, and it, it points to the two-way nature of when you're working with your clients as a coach, there's that internal process happening as well. If there's something that's really uncomfortable, we're encountering as you sort of questioned in the languaging earlier in another, yeah. if it's their pain, if there's something that's particularly charged or moving in that for them, uh, sorry, for me, as I witness it in them, then perhaps yeah. that's pointing to something in myself that I need to give attention to give, yeah. uh, curiosity and, and bring that inquisitiveness. Yeah. And I would say perhaps would be the word I would never use. I would just say it is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cause then it would perhaps would stop me from like really looking. So I'll have to say, no, no, if there's something going on there that I don't necessarily see going on in myself, then I'm just like, what is it that, or if I feel the trigger, obviously I almost see, I see myself as like a net and like, 
like if the net is really, I guess it would be porous, then basically, oh, all the emotions there just flow. And if the net tightens because it can't just receive it, I'm like, oh, there's something blocking to allow that to fully, um, to fully pass through me. And then that's where the discoveries, of course, will happen. So do you have, I'm hearing inquisitiveness, uh, do you have a particular process or anything that you'd want to share with listeners or watchers as to like, maybe we encounter that in interaction with friends or family yeah. or in a therapeutic context or a coaching context. Is there a doing or a being that you can point us to that can help with that inquisitive curiosity? There, there, there's, there's certainly one tool that I've always loved to go to. And it was actually, it, it, strangely enough, it was developed by this man, Peter Koenig, who I also write a bit about in the book. And he, he does this thing called money work, which is a beautiful money is this wonderful thing you know, I think one of your last podcasts you said was about money and sex and money and sex are often like the last two things dealt with in spirituality. Mm -hmm. So you've sort of got like a lot of spiritually enlightened that have no money and, and are still uncomfortable about sex, right? That's mm -hmm. sort of the, the wonder of those. The, the, and, and Peter's dealing with the money aspect. And what, he, what he's done is he has this incredible work, which he calls projection and reclamation. And basically projection being that which I project onto. So if let's say this is money and then I project onto money uh, and money is a wonderful thing to project onto because it really, it's only paper. Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful because it's this shared human projection. Everyone projects onto money and by projecting onto it, we create it. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if you lived in Zimbabwe, uh, you know, you'd see that whatever you projected onto will ex basically become less and less existent to the point where it just doesn't exist anymore, right? We, we haven't had that experience in the recent past in, with our own currencies, but in essence, that's it. We project onto a piece of paper. We give that paper a value. And then from that value, that, that defines us, which is, the, which is the beauty of it, is that now we've taken a paper and let's say, I'll give an example. If I say money is power, right? If I project power onto money. So power used to be inside of me. I am powerful. And then now I have paper and now I project onto the paper and I say money is power. What I don't know, but what I'm actually saying is I am powerless without money. Mm -hmm. Which so, changes that relationship on a pretty fundamental way. On a pretty fundamental way. And you'll see people obviously immediately that project power onto money unconsciously, right? You don't do it this consciously. You just say money is power. And then, and then obviously the, the consequence is what you are actually saying is I am powerless without money. But you do that, as I mentioned, on an unconscious level. So the way that you would come back to, to reclaim that in yourself would be finally stating I am powerless without money and it's okay. Mm-hmm. So you would actually allow yourself to see the unconscious projection and have peace with that. Mm -hmm. I am powerless without money and it's okay. So that would be one side of this reclamation process. And mm -hmm. then the other side would be, I am powerful with and without money. Mm -hmm. And once you've allowed yourself to feel totally comfortable with the state that you are currently in, 
and then allow that to pass through you, right? You, you become porous again. And then reclaim that part where you're powerful with or without, with or, or without money. Then you're basically money or that aspect of your relationship with money is no longer defining you. Or if it is, it's defining you in a, in a more integrated way. Right. I'm hearing like a sort of neutralizing or a making conscious of what was previously uh, unconscious. Yes. Yeah. And it's on a, it's on, it's on another level. It's not only, I, I would hate for it to remain on the level of just rationality. Cause if you say that enough, I am powerless without money, you basically will start to at some point you'll start to, you know, you'll feel your body jerk a bit. It's as if you're, you're on a cellular level, you're allowing your body to reintegrate this sort of feeling that that doesn't, you know, it, it you, you can't quite make sense of it. But it, at some point, you just like, oh, you feel a freedom in allowing that state to exist. And sometimes if people are really struggling with it, you'll say, tell yourself a lie so you can feel a deeper truth. Because people will oftentimes, you know, I've, I've dealt with a pretty benign paper. Money is pretty pretty, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not a big issue, but let's say if I project onto a person, right, then it gets far more personal. So sometimes um, we might have to say something like, I hate them and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Or I want to kill them and it's okay. Uh -huh. and, yeah. and, 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 and sometimes the mind won't be able to say that. So we'd have to say, allow yourself to, tell a lie so you can feel a deeper truth right and this is this is the essence of shadow work is it not which i think would be a, yeah. a catch-all term for much of what you're pointing to to look yes. to those places that we've rejected or made unacceptable our particularly again in spiritual circles we don't want to think that we would judge anyone or feel hatred towards anyone but to yeah. come into contact with those unacceptable parts of ourselves and to to own them uh yes. to experience that wholeness and that seems to be a, a key aspect of what you're all about is is bringing wholeness through self-awareness yeah. through acceptance of our pain through experiencing of our yeah. of our pain i, I want to make sure that um people know where to to go i'm sure many people watching and listening will be in the states i looked at the um the map the route map and you're yeah. on the east coast you're on the west coast and, and journeying in between um yeah. from from taswell tennessee to uh, chattanooga to uh, many other places beyond <laughs> where do people want to go to stay in contact it's the lastletter.com is that like the, the best best place to go yeah that's the best place to go and then in the lastletter.com then there is a link to the events page which is all on facebook right and that's inspire so, authenticity it's inspire vulnerability sorry right? inspire vulnerability on facebook yeah. and the website also so the lastletter.com also actually gives basic instructions or guidance for people to write that last letter themselves, right? They don't, yes. uh, if they're lucky, you'll be coming to their town, but of course anyone can write a last letter and there's some simple guidance on the website to support that. Yes, and Buzzworthy is going to be featuring um, a lot of the activity during the trip. So even to the point where, where people publish the letters, tiles will be made and they're creating a special web page 
where people can rank those tiles and then they'll be more and more um, uh, uh, like inspiring others to be vulnerable, which is the intention of the whole journey. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I think that just feels like such a wonderful framing, uh, the, insp the inspiring of vulnerability. Um, yeah. I'm really moved and appreciative to be, uh, to be your friend and to be exploring the space and to be hearing uh, and to have read the book. I encourage people to take that opportunity them, themselves as well. Is there anything else that you want to share that feels important to speak to with our listeners or, or watchers, Andy? You know, nothing really specific. I'm just deeply appreciative. These, this journey has been a very big surrender for me. So it's, it's, like a letting life unfold in a way that isn't always comfortable. I had a very comfortable life before. I mean, in the sense of need, need or want of nothing. So um, an experience like the one we have where we can be together, I, I see while surrendering allows new experiences like this to emerge. So I'm just, just really grateful for this opportunity and yeah. And, and, and hopefully some of the listeners will be, um, compelled to write a letter and then and then what i'd ask which is it's what keeps me going it's really a gift for me is to submit those letters because there's a joy of course in sharing but for me there's a bigger joy and wow it's actually something's actually happening it's mm -hmm. great to do but like i get my joy from oh there's another letter you know there's no joy necessarily in I'm really happy for what you're doing. It's like, great, I'm, I'm happy that you're happy. Like, support me with a letter, right? That's the feeling. Support yourself with a letter, quite honestly. It just gives my, my journey purpose. Yeah, yeah. and that, that just touches on a couple of really powerful themes that is important for myself and the community and the team here at Love and Truth Party, which is, I think I mentioned it in, in the intro around in giving we receive. You know, there's something deeply meaningful when we see that our our book or our website or our intention to inspire vulnerability is is doing just that. And I, I yeah. I'm really excited for you because it's clear that you, that there's something very profound and beautiful that is, is is being captured and expressed and facilitated. I think that's the important thing. Like people are going to be experiencing this directly for themselves. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to watching you on Facebook and on Buzzworthy by the sounds of it as well. And who knows where you'll be in uh, emotionally and spiritually in, yeah. <laughs> in, in three months time. I'll be, I'll be surprised by that as well. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us your time today, Andy. I appreciate it deeply and, and wish you uh, bon voyage and um, all the very best on, uh, on, a, on a continuation of your journey. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll have a, a remarkable trip. Thank you. To our listeners, if you've enjoyed this production, uh, I know I have. And if you'd like to support the creation of more similar programming, and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, please join us. You can, of course, uh, write the last letter. You can connect with Andy. You can also connect with us on loveandtruthparty.org. You can download the love letters from the universe to hand out in your community. You can join our newsletter. I've mentioned the online courses that we're in uh, development and also our monthly meditation. Our next one is uh, this coming Monday, 7 a.m., 
Melbourne time, which is uh, Sunday for most of the world. All those details are on our website, loveandtruthparty.org. Thank you to all our supporters and contributors. Together we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.